listening to the Nomad Skeptic Podcast brought to you by nomadskeptic.com. What's the digital nomad lifestyle all about? Is it really possible to live and work overseas, traveling from one exotic destination to the next, making money from nothing more than a laptop and an internet connection? Or is the DN concept a pipe dream, an illusion, an elaborate hoax? Trying to find and share answers to these questions and more, here's your host, JLB. Thank you very much, Meg. Yes, this is the Nomad Skeptic Podcast, episode number three, and we're recording this one on May 24, 2019. And have we got a show for you today? I'm talking with a lady named Suzanne, and she's coming to us from Tokyo. You'll very quickly realize that she is not from Japan originally. Suzanne's going to tell us all about where she's been, what she's doing, and the digital nomad path that she's been on. So without further ado, Suzanne, great to have you on the Nomad Skeptic Podcast. How are you today? Hi, John. I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it is terrific to have you here. And the Nomad Skeptic Podcast is still very early in its journey, and you're the first female guest that we've had on the show. It's terrific to have you here. And you do have quite a story to tell us today, don't you? Well, I guess your uh, your listeners will determine that, but I feel good uh, being a female pioneer. That's the way. And you've been doing the DM thing for how long now? For about five years. And how long have you been in Japan? I've been in Japan for almost two months. Ah, so still early days for you there. What are your first impressions? Um, I love Japan. It's so it's so interesting. I've, I've been staying in Tokyo. Um, I, I tend to travel, uh, to different countries every two to three months. So I'm only here in Tokyo for another maybe week and a half or two weeks. And I am enjoying it fully. I've been going to tons of digital art exhibits, um, just kooky places. Yesterday, I, I, I went to a restaurant that served salads with a spoon, you know, Tokyo is weird, but um, but a lot of fun. I've been having a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, I'm looking at your website right now. This is the Love Light Project. And on the main page, we've got a few images here. We've got what looks like some kind of walking path. What country is that one from? That was from New Zealand. Then the next photo we've got is you doing a yoga pose that is still a little bit difficult for me. You've been into yoga for how long now? Oh, I've been a yoga teacher since um, since 2013, and I had I had been practicing, you know, probably for a decade prior to that. Wow. Well, we'll definitely be talking about that during the call. And then the next image, and this is going to test my Asian writing detection skills. Those look to me like Korean symbols. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, that was in South Korea. That was in Busan that picture. Fantastic. All right. So we've got a lot to talk about today. We'll talk about your experience traveling, doing the DN thing, trying to run a business while overseas. And of course, one of the main thrusts of this podcast and of this blog, I'm also exploring not just the good sides of all of this, but maybe some of the bad sides as well. Is this lifestyle something that a lot of people could do? And if they can, could they do it longer term? Is this more of a short term thing? What are the goods? What are the bads? And not just on the personal level, but also on the the wider level, maybe the macro level, the DN scene and subculture, maybe what are some of the things about it that people won't realize until they're on the road? 
These are the kinds of things we're going to be talking about today. Suzanne, sound good? Awesome. Here's the hardest part of any interview you're going to do with JLB. This is where I shut up and throw the microphone to you for a few minutes. Give the listeners a deep introduction into who you are, what you do, why you're doing it, who is Suzanne, and what is the Love Light Project? Okay, so I am uh, an American by birth, and professionally, I do a lot of different things. I am primarily a writer. I've been a professional writer for more than 20 years. Um, I've, uh, I've written a book. I do a lot of copywriting for a, a variety of clients. I just produced my first online course in writing. I am also a marketing consultant. Uh, so I do work with businesses, nonprofits, um, a variety of agencies uh, looking to uh, to market their business in a variety of ways. So I can, I can help with the big picture on that as well as the, the minutia. I am also a life coach. So I do work with people who are going through transitions, often, you know, sort of working towards a, a more remote lifestyle. I like to help people live their best lives. So and in that vein, as, as you mentioned, I am also uh, a yoga teacher. So I teach yoga online and I'm an energy worker as well. So I can do some, some energy healing remotely as well. So I've got a lot going on and I love it. I am single. I have no children. Um, so I'm uh, fairly independent to make my own decisions, which is really cool. And, uh, and as a result, it's allowed me to, to, to travel the globe for the last five years. I grew up in Pennsylvania and went to university in New York City and moved down to Florida for, to, to work at a newspaper. So I was a newspaper journalist for about a decade. Um, and that's how I, I began um, my career. But now I am completely freelance and completely remote and love uh, learning and exploring different cultures throughout the world. So that's, that's sort of the main uh, thing that I like to do with my time. Excellent. Well, let's test my listening comprehension here. So you grew up in the northeast of the U.S. and you went to college in New York. What did you study at college? Uh, I studied journalism and politics at New York University. Was this because when you were younger, you were more idealistic and you wanted to report on the politicians and the corruption and the crime and to get to the heart of the matter? Um, you know, I ended up doing that. I will say that that's a, that would definitely be one way to describe um, a, a section of my investigative journalistic career. Um, but when I was younger, I was actually uh, always interested in writing. I was writing poetry, actually. When I was in school, I did a lot of creative writing. But when it was time to graduate and figure out what I wanted to do, I realized that I didn't know very many professional poets. And I decided that I wanted to eat. So that's why I studied journalism, just because I enjoyed writing. And politics was always something that was just interesting to me. I ended up working in politics before I started traveling pretty intensively. So, um, so I've used everything that I've learned. Um, but more so, 
um, the experience of living in New York City was a first taste of adventurous solo travel. Wow, I bet. Do you return to New York very often? Is it one of those places that you've seen, you know it, you don't have to go out of your way to go back and check it out? Mm, probably more the latter. Um, I do have some friends still living in New York, and uh, it's fun to visit. I don't have any desire to, to return there to live. Fair enough. And when you were at college, did you work on the college newsletter or newspaper? Were you one of those students who was really into the college campus scene? Well, the joy of the university that I went to was that there really wasn't a campus scene because it was in the middle of New York City. So I was able to intern at magazines. That was so I, I worked at um, Natural Living Today, American Health for uh, Women, This Old House magazine. Um, I freelanced at uh, the Village Voice newspaper. There was a newspaper called University that was not related to my university. Um, and I did music reviews for them. You know, so I was actually getting real world experience during that time instead of working on the school paper, which I found to be a, a blessing. Excellent. And I'm just looking up Pennsylvania here. I like to refresh my memory. I don't really know a great deal about the US, so I'm sort of learning as I speak to people. It says here that the nickname for Pennsylvania is the Keystone State and the Quaker State. Now, when I think of Quakers, I think of religious people. Do you mind if I ask, were you raised in a religious environment, a religious neighborhood or family or anything like this? There was a Quaker friends meeting house near where I grew up, but I am not at all related to that. My mother raised me Catholic, and I consider myself a Catholic dropout. I dropped out at a very early age and um, consider myself an extremely spiritual individual. I do a lot of studying in regards to Buddhism and Hinduism. I'm very interested in Eastern philosophy and spirituality. I am not at all Catholic or Quaker, but I do, I do follow a lot of the, the sort of the, the undercurrents that um, connect many different religions and, um, and do uh, believe in divine timing and divine guidance. Excellent. Well, maybe we can talk about that later in the call as well. So let's fast forward then. You've gone to college in New York and you've done your internship there as well. And then an opportunity has come up in Florida, which is a very different environment. And you've taken that opportunity. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, the joy of being a newspaper reporter is that at the time, <laughs> newspapers were everywhere. So it was sort of like, where did I want to go? So I wanted to go to the beach. And um, so, so I moved south and worked at a newspaper. I lived five minutes from the Atlantic Ocean in the sort of south central Florida coast, which was beautiful. And uh, I, worked, I worked there at, at the paper for about a decade, not quite. And uh, I got burnt out. That's, that's a tough, uh, is a, a journalism is a, a tough gig um, to do on a day in and day out, but it teaches you a lot regarding um, work ethic and like busting out the work, you know, getting, getting it done and moving on are um, important skills as a digital nomad. 
right? To be able to complete your task uh, in a timely manner and not let it take up your whole day and, and be sort of self-motivated. So it created a really nice foundation for me, but it also was stressful. I can only imagine how much stress might be involved in that kind of job. So you would have been about, what, early 30s and you've done your 10 years in journalism. And then tell us what happened next. Yeah, I was still... Um... It was late 20s when I left the newspaper. I went into nonprofit work. I took a job as a communications director for an after-school program for kids. And I wrote their grants and started doing all their public relations. And that was a wonderful sort of in the deep end um, for totally different ways of writing. You know, so, so it expanded um, my skill set with writing as far as as doing that, you know, the public relations uh, in journalism, they call it the dark side, you know, because uh, there's no going back. Once you start to, to get a little biased, it becomes challenging to be an objective reporter. But I loved it because it was the type of job where I could take a break and go next door and play Foursquare with kids and get hugs and, uh, and just sort of play for a little bit. So, so I enjoyed that. I worked, so I worked there for maybe about four years. I then took a job with a real estate auction firm. It was a small private business. Um, they needed an advertising director. So I, uh, that, this is where I learned graphic design. I did all of their ads. I, I also rebranded the entire company um, with new, uh, new web design, new web copy, new logo, all that kind of stuff, and was in charge of overseeing their budgets for advertising. I was there for not quite a year because then I got a job um, with a local government agency. This is all in Florida. So this all just sort of fell into my lap. This was all in the same general little town where I was living near the beach. I was working for this agency that funded children and family programming, and they had to go back to the ballot to get reauthorized to continue to receive funding uh, to continue their work. And it was the first time that they were going back to the voters in 25 years, and they had no communications at all. They had, they had no public relations at all. They were all they were, it was just this small agency of 10 people, and they were basically paper pushers, right? They were interested in data analysis to determine the needs uh, for kids so that they could put the money towards where it needed to go. And um, they were kind of smacked sideways with this, with this proclamation from the legislature that they had to go back to the ballot. So I had to create an, an, an entire marketing strategy and execute it to pass this referendum. And, um, and they weren't very popular. This was an older, conservative, rich white town. So they weren't really interested in helping, you know, poor families get by with, you know, prenatal care or after school program or funding the, you know, the school nurse program or, you know, all of these sorts of things. So it was um, a political undertaking, which took took me about three and a half years. And we passed that referendum with 77% of the vote. So it was sort of a slam dunk, I think. <laughs> Well, this might be a little bit of a personal question, but the referendum that you were getting passed, helping to get passed, 
Was this something that you really believed in yourself or was this you doing your job as a professional? Oh, well, I thought it was important because I saw the programs at work, right? When I worked at that after-school program, I saw children whose lives were changed for the better through this program. So I, I understood the value of supporting people in our community who needed help. And I always, uh, that's, that's something about me. I'm, I'm a service oriented person. I like to help people. Uh, uh, I like to help people feel better <laughs> in whatever way I can. So that was important to me. Um, however, you know, it's a good, you raise a good question because what made me successful in that job, especially because there, there really was a lot of politics involved with it, was that I was fairly detached. I didn't have children. I didn't really have roots in this community. I had lived there now for more than a decade, right? Now, you know, we're coming up on, I think I, I, think I lived in, in, that, in that community in Florida for 15 years total. So I certainly had a network, both personal and professional, but the reality was that I could leave and did leave, right, at any time I wanted to. So I was fairly detached from the end result of that referendum, which made, which, which made me a better spokesperson for it. Because if you cared about the community, if you were rooted in the community, then you would care about the community even more. And that was really actually the angle that I took was sort of like, if you love your community, then you love all these programs that are making this community so strong. Yeah, I see. So the reason I asked that question is because it's almost a cliche now, this idea of people who go and study journalism, or in Australia, we tend to call it communications. And when they're young and idealistic, they have this idea that they're going to be exposing the truth and helping people to make better decisions because they've got all the information. But where the jobs tend to be is in what's called public relations, which is effectively propaganda, which means that they go from the idealistic, I'm going to go and help people by telling the truth. They eventually end up as professional no, I'm going to say what's in the best interests of my employees because that's my job. And the way that you told the story just said it almost seemed like that was almost the path that uh, that sort of laid itself before you when you're in your late 20s and 30s. Yeah, it, I, it's true. And it can be sort of soul sucking. I think that's why they call the PR the, the dark side. You're, like you said, they're you know, sort of the, t- the polar opposite of of journalism. Now, at the same time, Keep in mind, this entire story that I just laid out um, of my past, I was also freelancing for magazines. So I have um, been writing in a journalistic manner um, my entire career. So in one way, you are correct that it's sort of, uh, it can feel a little soul sucking to just sort of do your job and make your client look good. Um, But I think an important element of a fulfilling career is one that you actually believe in. And I would never work for a client that I, I didn't believe in. If I, if I don't believe your mission, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to sell you. Excellent. Well, speaking of missions, you need to fast forward for us and tell us how did you get from the work that you were doing there in Florida with the referendum? How did that suddenly or eventually transition? to somebody who could jump on a plane and go and work for oneself. What happened in the interim there for this big change in life? Yeah, so I passed the referendum, right? It was like, woohoo, like success. And I, I was, again, 
burnt out because, you know, that was, I was talking to, there was whatever, 140,000 voters in, in this, in this community that I was, you know, just endlessly talking to. So by the time this, this vote passed, I was over it. I was totally over this whole town, to be honest with you. And I was looking to move. So I had, I was traveling a lot throughout the United States, visiting friends every, in in all these states, trying to figure out where I wanted to live. And no no place was really talking to me. Um, But I knew that I was ready to move. And and I was applying to jobs and I just, nothing was really working out. At this time, I actually met a man who had a sailboat. Okay, so I never jumped on the plane originally. I actually jumped on a sailboat. Um, he was like, let's go sailing. And I said, okay, because you don't, you don't really say no. This wasn't just some random man you were walking down a pier one day. Hey, you, jump on the <laughs> boat. Okay. Tell us a bit more about this story. This is fascinating. No, I mean, obviously we started dating. My, he was my boyfriend at the time and he had, and he had this, and he had a sailboat and, and he said, let's, let's go sailing. So I said, yeah, of course. So I sold all my stuff. So I was living in a, in a two bedroom house with a garden and a shed, you know, and a car and everything like a life. And I sold all of that, uh, sold my cars, quit my job and, um, and moved enough of my stuff onto this 32 foot sailboat. Uh, so that was my first major divestment. I don't, so no storage unit, no going back. I just, I got rid of everything that I couldn't fit on the boat. And what year was this? Oh, okay. Um, that was, I, that was 2015. So the, the vote passed in November of 2014. And within, within five months, I had sold everything and moved on to the sailboat. Wow. And so did you guys have a destination in mind? We're going to go to the Bahamas or we're going to try and... Was there a destination at all that was planned when you jumped on this boat? Basically. Yeah, that, that is exactly it. It's, there is um, sort of a set route that makes sense for uh, liveaboard sailors who, by the way, are mostly retired. The vast majority of people that I met, I would say 95% of the people that I met living on sailboats were retired, you know, off living the dream. So I, most of the time I was the only person that I knew that was working at this time because my boyfriend uh, was a merchant Marine. So he would work, you know, three months solid and then have off for three months. So he, so often when, so when we were together, he wasn't working either. But indeed, we went to the Bahamas, and he worked as a boat captain in the Bahamas. So we were in the Bahamas uh, sailing around for, golly, I don't know, six months, eight months or so. And then we sailed through the Bahamas, through the Exumas, went over to Turks and Caicos, went down to the Dominican Republic, lived there um, for hurricane season. Um, then sailed over to Puerto Rico and was around there for a little while, went over to the U.S. Virgin Islands and the British Virgin Islands. And by that time, John, I was totally over the relationship. It had fizzled. So I, I moved my stuff off the sailboat and got myself a tiny apartment 
in St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Well, we'll come back and pick up that story there in a moment, but let's go back a little bit because even though you jumped on a boat rather than a plane, it still does allow me to ask one of my favorite questions, which is when you told your friends and family that you were getting rid of your apartment and you were getting rid of a lot of your stuff and you were changing your job, you were changing direction, completely changing your life, what kind of reactions were you getting from friends and family and colleagues and acquaintances? What were they saying to you? Yeah, it was all over the board, right? So some some friends were excited for me because it was such a romantic action, you know, sail off into the distance, you know, sail off into the horizon with with a man that I loved, you know. So there was there were some friends that were just excited for me. Some friends were um, were challenged by it. As I was divesting, I had one friend who expressed her love for me through gifts. And, um, I was really, I didn't see it coming. Um, when I was selling my things and giving things away, um, one, one present that she had given me was a native, a beautiful wooden native American flute. And, um, she, and I said to her, you know, instead of me selling this, would you like this back? Because I, this isn't my instrument, but it's beautiful. And I, I don't feel right selling it to some some random person. And she really took that as an affront. Like I was, I was giving her friendship back to her. So there were some people that were really challenged at this, at, at this concept of me changing, of me making a major change. Um, they were, they were personally confronted. My family, you know, that, you know, I'm always, I've always been a little bit of a, of a black sheep in my family. So I'm always kind of doing the weird thing like that's Suzanne, you know? So, so there was a, there was a level of that, like, oh, now that's the latest weird thing that she's doing. I think my parents were probably nervous for me. My mother was especially nervous that I, about healthcare and benefits like that. That was like her big thing that how, that I needed to have healthcare. And, um, and that was, I guess, I don't know if that was wise or not. I ended up not being unsuccessful with the like healthcare marketplace with Obamacare. You know, that's the challenges of, of being an American. Anyone who's, who's tried that system knows that that can, that can be um, a real disaster. But, um, but they were, they were nervous for me, but also accepting. What did people think of this idea that even though you're going to be traveling on a boat and going to different countries, that you could still do your freelance work? Did people understand that this isn't just a holiday? I can still earn money while I'm away and the laptop and the internet, I'll be fine. Could people resonate with that idea or was it just too foreign? You know, I think it was foreign. As uh, we had talked about previously, John, you know, digital nomadism wasn't a thing then that I had never heard of that term. I just knew that I was able to work freelance as a, as a magazine journalist. And so I had that experience and skill set to, to try to sell articles to magazines. And at that point, when I first went on the sailboat, I just started hustling. And, and started doing any sort of writing work that I could find remotely. And, and so, you know, I don't know if I really talked to anybody about me making it, making it work for me financially. I don't know if anybody really thought that that was, I think they just trusted me. I think they just figured if I had, if I didn't, if I didn't have a way to make money that I wasn't going to be able to do this. 
Yeah, I understand. The reason I ask, and I'll be asking all of the guests on the No Mad Skeptic podcast this question, is because to me, when I found out about this idea that, yeah, man, you can travel and make money on the internet, and this is all possible now, it made sense to me on an intuitive level. But I'm 31 now. When I heard about this, I was late 20s. I've grown up in a time when computers are ubiquitous and smartphones are ubiquitous. But I think a lot of people who decide to go down this path, they'll be speaking to friends or family who are in their 40s or 50s or 60s. And many of these people are highly competent with technology, no problems. But because it hasn't been such a big part of their life for most or all of their life, it's still more likely to come across as this foreign idea of, yeah, man, anyone can make money on the internet now. And so I'm curious to see what kind of responses people get from friends and family when they talk about this idea of making money on the computer. But we're still in the introduction scene of this podcast and we're halfway through. Can you believe that? But you have, you've got to pick this story up for us. So you jump on the boat with some handsome exotic man and he says, we're going sailing. <laughs> and you say, sure, let's go sailing. But in those cramped confines, maybe relationships, maybe they kind of, you get, you get the fun and the frivolity and all the dramas of 10 or 20 years condensed down to a few months. That's what it sounds like. You pick <laughs> that the, is, That's fair. That's fair. You pick the story up for <laughs> us. So walk us through from the, from the boat relationship exotic man through to identifying as a digital nomad. What happened in the interim? How'd you start picking up your work? Explain all of this to us. Um, okay. Uh, I, as far as the work went, um, like I said, I was really hustling. Um, that was I, I had never heard of, you know, Upwork or anything like that. Some One of my friends had told me about uh, an online platform. Uh, it's like a job board called eByline. I don't think it even exists anymore, but it was basically a similar sort of thing to, um, to Upwork. I, I connected with a few agencies. Some agency in LA uh, started kicking me some work and I just, I just did it all, right? So anything that came my way... I was writing, I was pitching to magazines. I was, I, I was basically making it happen by creating connections. Um, I, I connected with a woman who had a PR agency in Florida who had known the work that I had done there. And she offered to put me on retainer. So that was sort of the beginning of it, really, to make it happen. Was that once I got that retainer gig, then I got a, another one. And, and then I just started to get the clients, you know, then, then it just sort of fell into place professionally. Excellent. Well, on the other side of the break, I want to ask you about Upwork, Fiverr, your opinion on these platforms. How legitimate is it for people to expect to be able to make work through these platforms, especially if they don't already have the skill set, which you did. But a lot of people seem to think they can just start this and start making money. We'll talk about if that is realistic, and then we'll talk about your experience as a DN, the DN subculture, the DN scene, other DNs you've met. So we've got lots to talk about on the other side, but I like to break these podcasts up, as you know, Suzanne. And what I ask the guests is to come along with a clip or two that we can use as an interlude to break up the call and try and make it a scene from a film that might be relevant to the conversation. And you responded with a clip that I'd never seen but I absolutely love it. This is from Easy Rider. Do you want to set the scene for the listeners, whether they've seen this film or not? Tell us the scene that we're about to listen to. Whereabouts in the film does it happen? Where are these gentlemen having their conversation? Give us a context of this clip. Yeah, this is Easy Rider is a essential, you know, 
hippie classic. It's, you know, it's a 1960s movie that everyone should watch that's basically about freedom and, and leaving behind the institutions of the world and, and taking off on your motorcycle. And it's, you know, there's lots of like chopper scenes with Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, you know, grinding down the road, roaring down the road. And so they're on their, their adventure and, uh, and they find themselves unable to, to get a room. So they're sitting around a fire um, there and Jack Nicholson is there. They, they pick up this sort of square guy who is interested in this counterculture life that, um, that these bikers are living. And so they're all sitting around the fire and, and talking about sort of their, their current situation and, and how they differ from everyday America. You know, this used to be a hell of a good country. I can't understand what's going wrong with it. Man, everybody got chicken. That's what happened. Hey, we can't even get into like a second-rate hotel. I mean, a second-rate motel, you dig? Think they think we're going to cut their throat or something, man. Like, they're scared, man. Oh, they're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. Hey, man. All we represent to them, man, is somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. Oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. No, well, don't make them running scared. No, it makes them dangerous. Generally, <laughs> you know, no, man. You know what I used to do? What you used to do? Well, I'll tell you one thing I didn't used to do is talk to bullfrogs in the middle of the night, <laughs> foolish. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of your mind, man. That's right. Wow, so that was Easy Rider. I'm talking with Suzanne, who runs the Love Light Project. And what a clip. Wow, that is fantastic. Uh, that does relate to this concept of the DN, doesn't it? This idea of challenging what people think is the normal lifestyle. And for some people, this does represent something of a threat to their lifestyle because they've followed what is a tried and true path for many people. Go and get good scores at high school. Go and get a good degree. Go and work your way up through a company. You know, this is the stable, sensible life. And for many people, I think that is the right path. But for some of them, they'll look at somebody like you, Suzanne, or somebody like myself, and it can be a bit threatening because it's so different to what they know. Yeah, it's it's a matter of 
a new society. I mean, I call I call digital nomadism a, the new economy. Right? This is you know in modern day there aren't pensions anymore. You know, at one point, right back in the '60s, people would start their career at one company and end it at the same company. That's that's crazy now, right? Like that's not how that's not how the economy works. So this idea of just massive cultural and economic shifts, uh, it's sort of like get with the program or get left behind, it almost feels like. It is. It's a completely different environment. Even to just 15 or 20 years ago, the world has changed so much, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's exciting, but, but you're right. Also scary, you know, this, this idea of everything that you learned and everything that you were taught might not be the best for you or, or it might be better really for somebody else that you're just a cog in the machine. A cog in the machine. Yeah. And the thing is, if I could, if somebody took me back 60 or 70 years and said, right, you're going to work for the same car manufacturer as your father. And so long as you turn up and do your job and don't cause any problems, you'll have a job here until you have children and until, until they have children. I actually don't have a problem with that. I think there's something beautiful about stability and about living where your family and friends live and working with the same people because they're not just your colleagues, they're the other humans in your life. I think all of that is beautiful. But that's not the world today, is it, Suzanne? That is not how things are in 2019. No. And, it, you know, when I left that government job, I, I was the hero, right? Because I had saved everybody's job by, by getting that referendum passed. I could have stayed in that cushy government job with a pension and benefits for the rest of my life. But the other thing, you know, the other scene in that Easy Rider movie, when they begin their adventure, their cross-country journey, Peter Fonda takes off his watch and he throws it into the dust and peels off, right? And, and, that, and that's, that always resonated with me, this, this idea of freedom, in, in your life and doing what you want to do and carving your own path. Uh, there's something very attractive about that. Well, I should hope so. This is the Nomad Skeptic Podcast. So let's get into the second segment here. I want to know about what you know about digital nomadism. When did you first hear about this concept? When did you first hear of Tim Ferriss? Have you ever read his book? When did you first start using the Digital Nomad subreddit? All these kinds of things. Tell us digital nomadism. What does this mean to you? How long are you familiar with it? The floor is yours. Yeah. So um, after I was in, in the Caribbean, I had some, some changes. I thought I was going to go sailing again. And that fell through. So what I decided to do was sell everything that couldn't fit on my back. What, everything that I couldn't carry, I sold. And I found something that I consider to be a travel hack, which is house sitting. Um, so I, I actually rarely pay rent, rarely pay for my accommodations and travel. So that's actually what I'm doing in Tokyo right now is I'm caring for two cats. And I, so I spend about two to three months um, in different countries living in people's homes for free and caring for their animals. I found that opportunity. I had nothing but a backpack and... And that's when I got on that plane and began what I guess would be considered um, a digital nomad life completely. So the cat that we heard in the background earlier is not your cat. That is the cat of the person who owns the place that you're currently looking after. Correct. And I'll have you know, all cats love except for this one. This one's name is 
Mr. Handsome and he hates me, which I, as a single female, I find very poetic. Well, that, uh, we heard the we heard the meows in the background earlier, and I was going to ask you about that. So now it all makes sense. Everything is starting to make perfect sense. <laughs> yes. So so I lived so I you know I lived in Argentina um, for a while. Then I I I lived in I taught some yoga in Mexico for a little while, and uh, and then I flew. I made the big jump at that point. Flew to New Zealand where I lived for, for three months. So basically I max out my visa, right, wherever I go. And it wasn't really until I left New Zealand and flew to Malaysia and I lived in Penang for three months. And that's where I first heard about, that, that's, that's where I started to, rec- I met other digital nomads. I met other people like me doing this, this, this remote work lifestyle. And, um, and so that's, you know, that's really where, where it sort of came into existence for me. I have not read Tim Ferriss's book. The type of work I do is very different than what I think he is espousing. Um, I do read a lot of inspirational books, but not that one. Excellent. So do you know when you, where you were or when it was when you first heard the term digital nomad? No, no, I don't know. I don't know where, where I was, you know, I, um, I did, I think, I think it might've been Argentina, um, because I'm, I'm, I am active, uh, you know, on Reddit and, and Facebook, I belong to a number of different groups. Um, for example, there, my, my friend Malou runs a female digital nomads Facebook group. And I got a lot of good information from those types of groups as I was just starting out. Um, so I, I try to remain active and, and now, and now be the one giving advice to people that are starting out. For example, I, I was, I, w- I was searching some for something recently and I, I came across, um, you know, a three or four year old question of mine that said, what's a VPN? You know, so there's, <laughs> there was a time I didn't know what a VPN was. Wow. So you saw a naive, less a web version of yourself online and uh, now you're kind of the person who is helping the newbies coming through. Exactly. Excellent. Well, I'm hoping that this call will help some of the newbies as well. I'm still relatively new. I've been on the road for about three months, so I'm still learning. And one of the main things I'm trying to learn is what does this lifestyle really entail? So we'll talk about that later in the call as well. But you were in Penang. Now, Penang is on the western side of Malaysia. There's a peninsula and then there is a Borneo side of Malaysia. Penang is on the peninsula side, just below Thailand. Tell us a little bit about your time in Penang. Yeah, that's a that's a lovely spot. Um, I was on the island, and uh, so I was I was again caring for cats in Tanjungbunga, which is you know a three minute uh, grab ride into Georgetown, which has amazingly yummy food. I was teaching yoga there. I was writing. And uh, enjoying the culture, it was my first time in Asia, so it was it was really exciting for me to just kind of begin um, the exploration. Uh, I did end up my next spot af- after Penang was was Thailand, so I lived in Chiang Mai um, for a month, and before I, I went over, then then you know again, it's just every every couple months I was in Korea, uh, I was down in Bali. For about three months, I was in Taiwan, uh, and then I spent some time in Australia, 
doing a, a lot of uh, travel there. Which cities in Australia did you check out the most? Um, I was everywhere. I, I went, I, I started in Western Australia, went across the Nullarbor, was in Melbourne for a while, went up to um, Byron, came back down. Then I spent about seven weeks exploring Tasmania. Yeah, it's a cool country. Wow. I'm JLB. I'm the host of the Nomad Skeptic Podcast. I'm from Australia. I've never been to Tasmania. I'm speaking with a lady in Tokyo who looks after people's cats, who has been <laughs> all over Tasmania, which many people say is the most beautiful part of Australia, geologically or geographically. I've never been there, but you have. How long did you spend driving around there? Yeah, it was about it was about seven months. I was living in a tiny home on wheels, so it was cool, like being able to, you know, you can just rock up to the ocean front and camp, uh, free camping all over the place. Great hiking. Uh, there's many places that are similar to New Zealand. New Zealand is gorgeous. Anyone who's been there knows that it is positively breathtaking um, in in areas. So the fact that Tasmania reminded me of New Zealand is, is speaks highly of it. Fantastic. So you've done the boat thing, you've done the plane thing, you've done the tiny home on wheels thing. And you said a couple of words that are like key words here on the Nomad Skeptic podcast, Chiang Mai. Spend a couple of minutes. Tell us what were you expecting when you got to Chiang Mai? What did you actually see when you got there? And what are your thoughts now reflecting on that city, the mecca for digital nomads, Chiang Mai? Tell us about that. It is a digital nomad hotspot. And you, you're right. I met more uh, DNs there than any place that I've ever been. And so that was that was interesting because I had not met many. And um, as because I'm not like staying in hostels or working in co-working spaces, I don't always interact with people that are working online. So it was refreshing to meet a lot of people that were doing sort of similar types of things that I was doing. Chiang Mai is um, such an easy city to live in. Uh, it's so easy to you rent your scooter, you pop into town, right into the old city. You have breakfast; it's cheap. I went to I went to a, a meditation class every morning. I'd go to a yoga class, get a massage three times a week. It was so cheap, you know. Everything was so inexpensive. You could eat lots of good vegan foods and just live a very easy life. Um, it was it was a wonderful time. I don't know if I really had any expectations. Per se. I, I try to keep my expectations low on life in general. So Chiang Mai has developed this reputation as the mecca for digital nomads. And there are certain people who promote Chiang Mai because, hey, it's in Thailand, so it's fairly cheap. And it's in the north, so it's, some say, easy to do border runs and this kind of thing. Do you see Chiang Mai as, do you personally see Chiang Mai as the mecca for digital nomads? And if so, do you think it'll be that way for a long time? Or do you think eventually people will start to target a different city? No, I don't know if it's the mecca. I think it's it's a hotspot. There are, I don't know, maybe a dozen places that in the, in the world that are relatively cheap, easy to live. Um, and is set up with the the services that you want to have on, on a daily basis. You know, uh, Chengu in Bali is sort of similar to that. And I actually did meet a number of, of, of digital nomads in Chengu as well. Um, so I don't know if it's the Mecca, you know, in Colombia as well. But it's so easy and fun 
Um, it does get really polluted, though. There's there's a, a time in, in, in Chiang Mai that you got to go because it's the burning season. So the air pollution gets pretty crummy at one point, And uh, a lot of people do leave, you know, and that's that's the thing. Um, it's it's not I wouldn't call it the Mecca because the thing about digital nomads is that they fly all over the place. So it's it's, you know, people will come in and, and leave, come and go, come and go. I mean, I don't think that there should be a Mecca. Uh, I think everybody's different. Some people are working online and have to work on Eastern Standard Time, right? So it's a, it isn't necessarily the best for them to be living in, say, Penang, which would, which would qualify for all the things that, that you just said as far as a good, a good spot to, to work. But if you're working um, when people are working nine to five, and, you know, I had a friend who had to wake up every day at 2 a.m. so she could sit in on a conference call for her work. Like, I don't know if that was really would would make it uh, a good place for her. You know, B- Bali is, is fantastic. Sometimes the Internet goes out. That's that's not so good. But then you're at the beach. So you have this high quality of, of life, you know, um, in Mexico, Tulum, I really enjoyed That's You can get awesome food. There's a you know high vibrational um, community. I don't know if if you're a digital nomad or an aspiring digital nomad, if community is really something that's necessarily high on the list. Um, because in general, the digital nomads that I know are hard workers and they're really focused on creating their passion and and doing and doing the work that needs to be done. So that they can they can continue this lifestyle. I don't really look to I don't know to my communities as a as finding as as finding a, a lot of you know like minded people. I think that that's just part of um, being human that you're trying to find that connection. I think that's that's sort of you don't necessarily need to find that in only digital nomads if you're following me. Yeah, you make some very good points there. There doesn't need to be a mecca, although I think for a lot of people, it's nice to have like a lightning rod, a place that they can look at and say, that's the place I want to go to. That's where a lot of people are doing this thing. If I want advice or uh, tips on how to do what I'm doing or people to show me around, is there a place in this world that I can go to where I'll find people who might be able to assist? And for me, for a long time, that was Chiang Mai. Now, I've never been there. It's on my list of, it's at the top of my list of places to go. But the more I speak to people who've been there, the more I get this impression that, yeah, there's lots of DNs there, but there's lots of good and there's lots of bad. And I guess I have to go and experience it for myself. Now, we're coming towards the end of the hour. In the final segment, we'll talk about the DN subculture, the DN lifestyle, and the ups and the downs, and give a more holistic view of what this all entails. But a couple of questions for you that I'm sure the listeners are wondering. Firstly, how easy is it if you want to house sit for people and look after their cats and kind of thing? How easy is it? How realistic is it? Is it something that anybody can get into or does it take a while to get your foot in the door? Both. (laughs) It's easy and and can take time to to get your foot in the door. You need you can sign up for websites. So I'm uh, a member of Trusted House Sitters, and there's another website called House Carers. And then there are websites that are more specific to, to areas, like uh, one that's specific to Australia, and then there's one that's specific to New Zealand that I know of. Um, so you set yourself up with a profile, and then people put up ads, and you can apply for those ads. So you need to have some good testimonials. You need to have pictures of 
you know, animals being happy near you, um, and, and basically, you know, have a level of trust and, and be able to, to demonstrate your responsibility, um, in order to be successful. But house sitting is great. You do have that responsibility though. So for example, I've been in Tokyo, you know, now for whatever, a month and a half and, you know, I can't just pop over to, to some other, you know, city in Japan on the train. I need to live in Tokyo. So I like this because it allows me to live like a local. I found a good jogging trail that I can, I can use every day. And, and I know, you know, my coffee place where I like, you know, so I can, you know, so I, I like living like a local understanding the subway and all that. So it's, it's certainly doable. And how does it work? Did you, did you get to that, that place? And then the owners said, here's where we keep the food. And they gave you a tour of the house or you had to look after their cat. Or is it kind of like an Airbnb where sometimes you can just turn up and there's no one there, but there's a piece of paper with instructions. Can you walk us through how the house sitting process works for those of us who've never done it? Yeah, it's um, no, there's usually um, uh, a debriefing uh, time where the person will, will introduce you to the pets. And uh, it's usually maybe like a, a day overlap before they go on, on wherever they're headed. And, and then you live in their stead. And sort of just keep the household going. Yeah, and, do, and do the cats uh, or do the pets warm to you as a person, or do sometimes it's kind of like a standoffish environment for a few weeks, where it's like, well, I don't like you, and you don't like me, but this is our spot for the next few weeks. Uh, yeah, both. I mean, I've had some some animals that are great. Um, the I, I in Chiang Mai, I was actually I was dog sitting, you know, and so you know that dog was immediately my best friend, you know, so no problem. And I've had most, most of the cats are super cool. I, I mentioned Mr. Handsome is not a fan. He is, he has swiped left on me and, uh, <laughs> and for, for, for weeks now. So that's, you know, it is what it is, you know, it's, but it's fine. It's got, not everyone has to, has to like me. I don't, that's all right. I'm wondering if it might almost be challenging if you did form too much of a bond with the pets because you've got to move on. So, I mean, it's one thing if you sort of feel at home in a, a town or a city and oh, I have to say goodbye and, and leave now. But what if you actually did build a, a bit of a bond with the pet? It'd almost be like, you know, people who do all pairing where they're kind of like the nanny for a child for a while and how difficult it must be to move on from one set of children to the next. If you did build a, a bond with the pet, that would almost be a challenge, wouldn't it, saying goodbye? Because you probably never see this pet ever again. Well, John, I think that that's part of the personality that goes into becoming a digital nomad. Um, I'm, not, I'm not one for attachments. You know, these are my furry companions for a couple of months, and they're cool, and everything's great. But I feel the same way about my friendships that I create throughout the world now. I have lots of friends in in Argentina, in Mexico, in New Zealand, in Malaysia, like, all these places. Like I, I have lots of friends in Bali right now. You know, I love them all. But when I left, I said, bye bye. You know, it's, I'm not, I'm not trying to make some sort of suffering out of my life. I'm, I'm happy to, to be with people and with animals when I am. And when it's time to go, I, I go. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a perfect segue, the personality of the digital nomads. So why don't we move into the final segment? Like I said, I want to learn about what kind of people are doing the DN thing, what kind of people are suited to it, what are some of the upsides that people might not be aware of, what are some of the downsides, 
Is it very community-minded in places like Chiang Mai, or are a lot of people very individualistic, which is what led them to do this in the first place? These are some of the things I'd love to learn more about. So you've met a few DNs on your travels, haven't you? Could you tell us, is it in the dozens or in the hundreds? How many DNs have you met face-to-face and gotten to know? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I would not say hundreds. I would, I would say more like dozens. And based on what you've seen, obviously this is a somewhat small sample size, but based on what you've seen, do you think you could give us an idea of what kind of people seem to follow this path? Yeah. Um, digital nomads tend to be um, self-starters, right? So, so that, that's important. They're self-motivated people. Not everyone is. Some people need to have the boss checking in or some sort of like social positive peer pressure to get the job done. So if that's, if that is your listener, then they, they're not, they shouldn't be a digital nomad because they will just procrastinate their day away. Digital nomads are, are, are often entrepreneurial spirits where they're often hustling, you know, trying to, trying to make it work because you're always, you got to make it work, right? You have to basically fund that one way plane ticket somehow, right? Um, they're, they're independent in, in spirit and nature. So, um, so they're, they, they don't necessarily need to have this big group of friends as a, as a support to their own identity. Uh, they're just, you know, forging, like, like I said earlier, just forging, uh, their path forward. And, you know, there's lots of different types of digital nomads and people. There's the, the, I call them the drop ship bros, you know, the guys that are, are doing these, these drop shipping businesses and, and become, are very competitive in nature. Um, and then there are, uh, I would say on the, on the, polar opposite scale are um are those that are are english are english teachers to to kids in china wow i hate to interrupt you've got to tell us about these drop ship bros is that really a thing because there's a couple of youtubers who i follow and i will openly admit that some of these and i love that term drop ship bros <laughs> some of them i do like to watch because they've got this very positive attitude towards what they're doing and towards life and towards technology and entrepreneurialism. So even though some of their lingo and some of their mannerisms are a little bit too, you know, television, gang culture, you know what I mean? It's, it's not my cup of tea. I love their attitude towards life. So I do watch some of these dropship bros. But I thought they were just a YouTube thing. You're saying they're a real thing. No, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same as the, the people that make money on travel blogs. I mean, that's what most people think that when, as a writer, that that's what I'm doing, that I'm, I'm taking, you know, these, these, I'm suddenly wearing a flowing dress on a swing over a rice paddy in Bali. And that's how I'm making my money. And I certainly know some women who are doing that. You know, there are so many different paths to success in this new economy, but you really have to dedicate yourself to it to make it happen. Yeah, and a lot of the dropship bros, what they're doing is they're not just trying to work on their business. If they are really working on their business, sometimes I wonder, are these guys just sort of traveling like backpackers, but giving it a new rebranded name? But they also seem to be enjoying, hey, it's uh, cheap to live in these countries and we've got more time on our hands, so let's put more effort into uh, working on our bodies and working on fitness and Muay Thai and these kinds of things. So 
You're saying you've actually met these sorts of people on your travels, yeah. these, these young dudes with their drop shipping. Uh, yeah, of course. Now, the, the reason that they're doing those, those um, Muay Thai workouts is because that's how you get um, an educational visa to stay for a year in Thailand. So that's how they're actually getting to, to stay in this cheap place. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very common thing. I think you're right um, that there's usually that's sort of like a side hustle until they can really make it happen, that they often have other types of jobs that they're working. But you bring up a good distinction um, between the concept of the digital nomad and the backpacker. Um, especially when I was, I was traveling throughout New Zealand, I met so many backpackers. Um, and, and that is worth noting. Um, because people will think that you are also a backpacker because you are traveling and that you're not working, that you're just sort of living off, you're just about to go broke, you're living, you're spending the rest of your, of your money. I like to say that I am always and never on holiday. It's a little bit like that, isn't it? Because you are in these exotic places and everyone else who looks like us or who speaks like us is on holiday. So we're kind of doing that. But at the same time, Tomorrow, you've got to go back to the co-working space or the cafe, and it's not as simple as just uh, picking up your backpack and, and flying to the next place. There's work to be done. Right, which, which allows me to live in these places longer, experience it more deeply, and I think live a, a, a more authentic life. Um, the, you know, so many backpackers just sort of drink their holiday away. And I don't have time for that. I don't have time for the hangovers. You know, I'll go and have fun. Um, but I, I'm more interested in, in really experiencing culture, making connections, understanding the world that I'm living in. That's, that's what I'm enjoying as a digital nomad is the, the experience that comes with it. I'm not interested also in spending all day in the cafe. I want to get my work done and I want to go have fun. Yeah, or in the airport terminal. I met a couple <laughs> of Americans a couple of nights ago and I'm stuck in my little bubble of doing what I'm doing. I forgot, hold on, the other Westerners here are probably traveling, like normal travel. And I kind of forgot that until I chatted with these guys and they were telling me about their itinerary and they're going from Kuching and then they're going to Sabah and then they're going back over to Penang. And I'm, Sitting there listening to their itinerary, I'm like, that is stressful. You're going to need a holiday after this yeah. little travel that you've taken. It's hard to imagine picking up and leaving every couple of days. It, after having done the last three months of just going at my own pace, I'm not sure I could ever go back to, yeah, we're, we're, on, a, we're on a tight time budget. We've got two days in this place. Two days in this place, man, I've been here for weeks and I'm still discovering stuff. You know what? Who wants to come here and fly away? It's, uh, it's madness. But you know what else is mad? We're out of time here. It's, we're at the end of their first hour. And I like to keep these calls to about an hour. So let me race through a couple of questions with you right What proportion of people do you think are capable of handling this kind of lifestyle? Because many people out there, they're dreaming of being digital nomads. This is their form of escapism when they're in their office cubicle. They're thinking, yep, in a year's time, I'm going to leave this cubicle. I'm going to see the world. I'm going to be a DN. Based on what you've seen of other people, ballpark figures, what proportion of people do you think could really do this longer term? You know, I think anyone that is dreaming of being a digital nomad needs to really get a gut check and determine um, how willing they are to set their own foundation for success. If they can create the skill set and, uh, and position themselves in a marketplace 
to work remotely and they think they have the, the temperament and the personality that I described earlier, then I think they should absolutely go for it. Um, if they are tied down to their possessions and their attachments to people and, they, and their own preconceived concepts of living in another country, you know, and they're scared and they don't think they can do it. If they're not confident in themselves um, and willing to take a chance and be confronted with challenge, then it's not for them. Excellent. All right. If you could go back to the start, this one's a really tough question, but I think it's an important one. And I did list this in my email to you. So for listeners, I'm not just bringing these questions on Suzanne and the other guests. I've given them a couple of days to think about it. If you could go back to the start, which I guess based on what you've told me today, maybe the start would be around about that time that you jumped on the boat. What advice do you think you would like to take back to the beginning of this trip when you downsized, got rid of the two-bedroom apartment and began the journey? What kind of things do you think, had you known back then, might have made things a bit more easy for you going forward? Hmm. Um, Probably less stuff. I am always trying to pare down my pack. It is always too big. I I follow the one bag subreddit and I, that I love. Um, it's inspirational. I am I am not. I just wrote an article on Medium about this. It it is hard to continually get rid of things so that you can be more mobile. So that when the travel day comes, you know you're still you still have everything you need, but not too much. So. Um, I, I would encourage my, my past self encourages my future self to, to get rid of stuff. Excellent. I love it. I completely agree with that. I probably took too much with me when I jumped on the plane and I've left a lot of that with a friend in Phuket in Thailand. I left the big case with him, which he was cool with. He's got a house there. He's, he's fine. And I just took my small case, the backpack and the laptop. And for the last couple of months, I've been perfectly fine. I think I took a little bit too much with me. When I jumped on the plane. Now, the final question, I think this one is the most difficult, and it's not one that you hear people ask very often. What do you think, Suzanne, the 2029 version of you, so 10 years in the future, if they could come back to today, what do you suspect they might be telling you? What, what advice do you think they would like to come back and give you today, knowing what they're likely to learn over the next 10 years? It's a bit of a mind bender, this question, but there's, uh, there's an important reason why I ask it. What do you think the future you would come back and tell the current you? Yeah, um, I actually am ahead of the game on this one because I, I had a hypnosis uh, session um, about a year ago where I met my future self and my future self told me to stop polluting my body. I, I care greatly about health. Um, that is that is something that I work with with my clients in in a variety of, of fashions. It's something that I care about. I follow a fasting regime. I am doing yoga and meditation and exercise on a daily basis. Um, so I still will have a, a, a drink or a sweet, or I won't eat. Um, I'll, I'll maybe I'll eat some cheese or something that um, I could I could probably do better as far as my own personal health. And so that would be my future. I would imagine my future advice to myself is to stop polluting my body and be, be healthy because you have, to be, you have to be healthy in this, in this business as well. If you're a digital nomad, um, it sucks to get sick because you're basically by yourself and 
you know, you got to crawl your way to the, to the pharmacy and, and figure out what you need in another language. So, you know, the more prevention that you can have, the, the better. That is a terrific response. I think I could do a one-hour call with you just based on what you just told me, but we can't. we're at the end. It does make a perfect segue, though. I'm looking here at your Love Light project, Shining the Light on Happy, Healthy Living. We'll have you back as a guest in the future if you'd like to come back. We've got so much more to talk about. But here's your chance now to let the listeners know more about your platform, how they can contact you or learn more about what you're doing. Take a couple of minutes and give the listeners a good outro. Tell them about the Love Light Project. Yeah, John, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Please check out my website. It's www.thelovelightproject.com. And that's how you can connect with me. You can learn uh, about the work that I do, which I've I've talked a lot about as far as my writing and marketing. If you'd like to work with me on a one-on-one basis um, for coaching, I love doing that work. If you're interested in in yoga and learning more about that. If you are interested in, in divestment, if you're interested in any sort of some travel experiences, if you want to see some books that I recommend, if you want to get inspired to do some community service projects, which I always do in countries where I live, please just go and and, and, and pop around my site. And if you have questions that please connect with me, I, I love to I love to meet people. And what I'll do on nomadskeptic.com in the show notes for this call, I'll put all of the details for you about the Love Light Project and how to contact Suzanne and anybody who wants to do so is warmly encouraged to do that. And make sure you leave a comment for me as well. Even just what you just said, Suzanne, about you still have a drink and you still have a sweet and you still allow yourself that kind of fun. I got the wrong impression when I took the website that you were one of those people who makes people like me feel ashamed. We still do have a drink and we still do indulge in the occasion a bit of bad food and there are people out there who are very uh, disciplined with their yoga and with their health and looking at your image on your website i thought you were one of those because you look incredibly healthy but you're here to say that no no it's okay to have the occasional drink and the occasional sweet if you don't think that i tried a number of high quality sakis while i've been here you know you don't think I did that. You're you're mistaken. Wow. Well, I was mistaken for the first hour of this call and I feel like an idiot. Suzanne, this has been so much fun. Make sure you stick around for a moment for the after call. Meg will play us out. This has been the Nomad Skeptic Podcast, episode number three. We've been with Suzanne from the Love Light Project. It is May 24, 2019. Suzanne's been coming to you from Tokyo, Japan. I've been here in Kuching in Borneo, Malaysia. Another beautiful day. I can't wait to go and enjoy it. Thank you very much, Suzanne. And we will see you guys for episode four, whenever that goes to where. Until then, you guys take care of yourselves. You've been listening to the Nomad Skeptic Podcast, brought to you by nomadskeptic.com. New articles, podcasts, and videos posted regularly at nomadskeptic.com. Join the Nomad Skeptic Discord server and be part of the conversation. And wherever you are in the world, have an awesome day. Oh, 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 o